of, I don't have the clicker, so you can, you, we have now gotten to the portion of our service where we open the Word of God and we hear from the Word of God um, and we learn from the Word of God. And today we are back in our series that we started together last September in First Thessalonians. We have been out of First Thessalonians for quite some time, looking at, uh, there was Easter, and then the Q&A um, caused us to start looking at the doctrine of predestination and free will. The past few weeks, we've worked through that, and I pray that it was insightful to you and that you have seen the truth of God's word in that. But we are back in First Thessalonians for the next couple of weeks, uh, this week and next week. Um, and then God will be here filling in uh, two weeks from today, uh, Lord willing. And then we'll continue to plug uh, through First Thessalonians and uh, for the next several weeks. And sometime in the summer, if the Lord wills, we'll finish our study in First Thessalonians. So I ask you now to turn to First Thessalonians chapter 5, and we will read the first five verses, pray and see what the Lord wants to teach us from his word. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying, peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman who is pregnant. And they will never escape. But you, brothers, are you, not, you are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, having read your word, to ask you to illumine and lighten your word by your spirit so that Christ can be glorified, Christ can be manifest in how we are to see and understand and respond to your word. So, Lord, we ask you to give us insight that will be useful for the transformation of our lives into Christ-likeness, in whose name we pray. Amen. So because we have been out of 1 Thessalonians for a while, and for some of you, this is the first time that you've been here. Um, if you're anything like me, you need some kind of context and revision, because Thessalonians chapter 5 is not written in a vacuum. Um, so just to kind of jog our memories, um, this is what, this is where we are. Paul, in the first three verses, uh, three chapters, gives us a lot of theologically rich truth uh, by way of introduction. And he finishes the third chapter with a prayer. Chapter 3 ends in a prayer because every spiritual truth, every theological knowledge can only be empowered by the Spirit through the means of prayer. Because in chapter 4, what he does is he goes into the practical life of the church. He, he introduces the church. He introduces himself to the church in the first three chapters. And it's really, really deep theology in there. It's conceptual. It's principles. And he says, I pray. And he prays and he takes them to heaven in prayer and he prays for them. And then in chapter four, the first part of chapter four, 
he starts telling them the practical implications of the church's life and sanctification. He tells them this is the will of God, your sanctification. And by way of abstaining from sexual immorality and impurity, right? So this is practical stuff that Paul tells them in the first parts of um, chapter 4, personally to be sanctified, but also he gives them an insight on how to live as a Christian in this society. How does the church supposed to live? Be quiet, work hard, honor the Lord, those principles, those practical applications of what he has said is what he tells them in chapter 4. But he finishes chapter 4 not just focused on how to live life in this planet, in this world, in this time, but he finishes chapter 4 reminding them that their life is not all there is here. There is a resurrection life, that those who die in Christ will be raised from the dead and inherit a kingdom. And he wants to reassure them, and he finishes that chapter with that reminder that there's more to life than what the daily struggle is. And he assures them about their resurrection life. So when you hear that one day you will be raised from the dead, and the Lord will come and call you up in the sky if you're still alive, or even if you're dead. If you're dead, then he, you get called up first, and you meet the Lord in the, in, in, in the clouds, and, and, and then those who are alive then gets called up. And the natural question you would ask is, when is that? When is the day of the Lord? How do we know when that is? How can we tell? That it's the end times and the, the Lord is going to just come. How can I tell? How can I know? Is there a two-minute warning? When is the time? It seems like Paul is, is answering that question to the church of the Thessalonians. And we as a church can learn a lot from that. In terms of if you ever wondered and were anxious when the Lord will come to you, or when the Lord will come back in glory. It seems like, from what we just read, Paul is saying, you got it. There's no need for anything to be written to you, he tells them. You already know this, so I don't need to write this to you. because you have a comprehensive knowledge of this subject in terms of the day of the Lord. Now you're listening to this and you might be thinking, I'm like, that's the last thing I worry about. I'm worried about what college I'm gonna to go to um, and what college life is gonna be like when I go in or how high school is gonna be next year because I'm getting ready to, to get out of middle school and go to high school, I'm kind of nervous. That's what makes me nervous because I don't wanna be a freshman and then the seniors pick on me and the, you know, all of these things. Th those daily things bog us down and consume so much energy. That's the things that we worried about the most. That's the things that make us anxious. And those things are real. I'm not discounting them. But there is a greater, more serious, with, a, with eternity on the line, there's a greater concern we need to have a comprehensive knowledge about. It looks like the Thessalonians either learned from Paul when he first went there, to minister to them about this. So he says, oh, I taught you this very well, so you already know, so you don't need to, you don't need to worry about the times and the seasons. About this you know. But do we know? Do you know? Are you concerned by that? Because ultimately, we're looking for something from outside to come in that the end times and the Lord come and descending from the heavens and everybody sees him, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. We want to see that time and we want to know when that time is. Is it in 10 years? Is it in five? Is it in a hundred? 
We want to know. But here's a guarantee. Whenever that time is, there is a time that the roles are reversed. You will go to him before he comes to you. There is a possibility. And people have been going to him since Adam. All of us would die and stand before God in judgment. And when we're young, we don't think about that. Because, you know, we got 60 more years to most of you. 70 years. For some of us, maybe 30, 40, if God wills. Right? I mean, we're, we're, we're talking in human terms, right? We, we want to, you, you look at the statistics, the average lifespan of an American is somewhere uh, like in the 70s, right? So if you're 18, 19, 14, whatever, how, however old you are, 20, you just minus that from 75 and you're like, okay, cool. I got X amount of time to live. But there is something we must know about the day of the Lord. As we talk about the day of the Lord, I want to define what the day of the Lord, how the Bible uses the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is not a day that the Lord has made, because every day is God made. The Lord made each day. Right? The day of the Lord, whenever you see that in the Bible, it's the day of judgment. It's not even a day of salvation. It's the day of judgment. The prophets used that, Joel, Isaiah, Zechariah, Zechariah especially, and Joel. Joel goes through it over and over and over and over again. Every time he uses the day of the Lord, there is a judgment being passed to the people of God and to the people of Israel or to the Assyrians. On the day of the Lord, I will do this, and it's judgment time. So I want us to know what the day of the Lord is. Because Paul says you have no need as a church to the Thessalonians because you know full well about this subject. Because at best, most of us think about our sanctification, right? The best of us in here think about our sanctification, abstaining from sin. We don't want to sin. We want to honor our parents. We want to uh, stay pure. Uh, we want to not tell lies. We want to do what Christ says to do in his word. And we want to be obedient at best. And we want to do that in this context, in this world. Whether you're in school, at work, or at home, or with your friends, whatever. Your social media activity, all of that. Is that honoring God? At best, the best of us. Is concerned about that. But thinking of the day of the Lord in judgment is probably down the list. Leading a, life, a quiet life, working hard, God's will for today is the best case. The worst case, though, which I hope is not the case for, for you, and I know it's not the case for most of you, We just go through the motions and not even worry about salvation and sanctification and living according to the will of God. We just worry about that when we get older. When I, have, when I get married and when I have kids, when, you get, when I get to Manny's age, then I'll be, I'll, I'll be that guy. So for now, I'm in a phase and a stage of my life where I can just you know, everybody around me is having fun, and I just want to—I just want to enjoy and experiment and dibble and dabble in certain things, and then I'll come back later. That's the worst-case scenario. You know why it's the worst-case scenario? Look down to verse two. What we know about the day of the Lord is that it comes like a thief in the night. We don't know when it's coming. That's what Paul is saying. The day of judgment, the day the Lord would either bring you to him or come down to you for judgment, 
is a surprise to all of us. We know this. And I kind of find it ironic, by the way, <laughs> how Paul is saying, oh, there's no need for anything to be written to you. And then he, he goes down and explains the things that we should know about the day of the Lord. So I think it's important for us to, to explore what he tells them about the day of the Lord. That they know very full well. We know the day of the Lord in terms of Christ's incarnation, right? Christ coming to save sinners, to reconcile sinners to a holy God. That is his first coming. We are so aware of that. And so were the Thessalonians. That's what they believed. Paul goes into Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17 and tells them that the Christ had to suffer and die. And this Jesus whom we proclaim to you is the Christ. That is the gospel that he preached to them. And some of them got converted right there on the spot. So this incarnation, the first coming of Jesus, if you will, that was fulfilled 2,000 years ago, where the Lord brought people from darkness to light. It is a subject we know very well. John 3.16 is our favorite verse in the Bible. But do you know what John 3.17 says? He says, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but the world might be saved through him. It's a great news. Jesus coming to earth, the incarnation of the Christ, was not for judgment, but for salvation. The Lord himself says this in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, where he says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. His very name, Jesus, indicates that. The angel shows up to, to, um, to Joseph and, and, and tells him in a dream that his betrothed wife-to-be, Mary, would bear a son, and she will bear a son, Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. That's why Jesus come from. Jesus came from heaven to earth to save sinners. And we are so confident in that knowledge. You know this stuff. But there is a day of the Lord. There is a coming of the Lord as a ruling, judging king that the Bible promises and prophesies. The Lord himself tells his disciples in Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 33. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the glorious throne and then all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. You see that imagery? of the judgment seat of the Son of Man, Jesus, who, when He comes in His glory, He sits on the throne. We read, that, we read about it in our scripture reading for today, and we'll go back to it to illustrate a point in, in what Paul is teaching about the day of the Lord. This is a promise. And if you believe that the promise of a Savior King coming to earth, living a life that you and I live, killed on a cross, buried in a tomb, resurrected from the dead, and ascended to heaven, if you believe that is true, you must also believe that His coming in judgment is true. This is something that you should have a comprehensive and a confident knowledge about. 
you should know full well that Jesus Christ will come as a ruling and a judging king. This is, this is part of the gospel that the apostles were commanded to preach. When Peter goes to Cornelius' house in Acts chapter 10 and verse 42, he tells them what the gospel is in the, in the previous verses. And in verse 42, he tells them, And he, referring to the Lord Jesus, commanded us to preach to people and solemnly to bear witness that this is the one who has been designated by God as the judge of the living and the dead. Christ has been designated by God the Father. as the judge of the living and the dead. And we are to proclaim this. He commanded us to preach this, Peter says. And when Paul was called to give the testimony of his teaching to the elites, the philosophical and intellectual elites in Athens and Acts chapter 17, and he proclaims the gospel to them. Verses 30 and 31, this is what he says. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now commanding men that everyone, everywhere, everywhere should repent. Why should you repent? So that you can live your best life now in the name of Jesus. Amen. No. Everyone should repent. This is what God is commanding because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he determined having furnished proof to all by raising him from the dead. Do you hear that language? You should repent because judgment is coming. And that judgment is given to the one who was raised from the dead, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the day of the Lord that the Thessalonians knew full well. Do you know full well about the day of the Lord? Do you consider it that way as a church? Because we must have the full picture of God's redemptive plan through Christ. If we're being honest, we like to presume on the first coming of Christ. We like to emphasize the first coming of Christ and we like to just camp there and live there and just presume on it and really exploit it and abuse it. Because he came to save. Jesus is my savior. And we abuse the fact that he has come in grace and mercy. We sin without even thinking about it. We do things outside of the will of God just because we know God is, will forgive us through Christ. We act disobediently because we presume on the first coming of Christ. And I'm not saying that that is not true. Is His grace is sufficient. Where sin abounds, grace abounds even more, Paul says in Romans. But does that mean we should sin more so grace may abound more? Paul asks. God forbid. No, he answers. That was a rhetorical question. Because there's grace out there, we should just go out and sin and live like there's no law that, that commands us to live in a way that is worthy of the gospel. And if we are honest, we live that way. If we are honest, we act that way. Because we know down the line, God is going to forgive us. All I got to do is just say, go back and say, hey, sorry, God. 
we presume on the first coming of Christ. But we must, as a church, have a full picture of that. What that means. Full picture of God's redemptive plan through Christ. Because a healthy church, like the Thessalonian church, has a comprehensive knowledge of both. And if we want to be a healthy church, we need to have a comprehensive understanding of both comings of Christ, if you will. Both as a savior and as a judge. Sometimes I wonder, not only when I'm in the pulpit, but when I watch other people in the pulpit, and other churches. And when I watch so-called Christians behave a certain way, and in a church context, even on the Lord's Day like this, in a gathering in an assembly of the saints for worship, I wonder, what would your response be if Christ was here in person? What would our response be? And I know you're thinking, most of us are thinking, yeah, it's because you're up there and you're, you're sinful, which I am. I, I take that on. And you don't even know how to speak English properly. You know, you got all your quirks and your, your that's why we probably don't even pay attention to you because your interpretation might, might even be whatever. And, you know, the people around us are also sinners. Nobody's perfect. What if the perfect son of God was here now? Would your behavior be the same? Would you still take the matter of his word that is true and faithful more seriously? I don't think so. I hope so, but I don't think so. Because when he was here in the first place, Nobody took him seriously, except for those who believed. Only a few responded in faith and repentance in him. So we must, if, we, if you want to be a healthy church member, a healthy Christian, a real Christian, a real disciple of Christ, you must consider and have this comprehensive knowledge of the day of the Lord. But when is that exactly? Is it next March? Is it next Tuesday? Another thing we know about the day of the Lord is that no one knows the exact time or the season. Because this is what Paul is writing to them, right? Concerning the times and the seasons, you don't need to know. Because no one knows. The Lord Jesus himself, in Acts chapter 1, verse 7, after his resurrection, he's been teaching them about the kingdom of God for 40 days. And, and then they come to him, his disciples come to him and say, hey, is this the time now where you will restore all, all your kingdom back and then you will reign as a king? Is it done now? Is it now, Lord? And here's what he says to them. But he says, he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has set by his own authority. Now, after Jesus, also in Mark chapter 13, uh, after Jesus talks to them about how should we know what the end times are going to be? And he gives them all these signs and, 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 and things as such. In Mark 13, 32, he tells them, But of that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. You can't guesstimate it. You can't go and decode the, the, the book of Revelation and try to make it line up with um, Ezekiel's 
prophecy and Daniel's prophecy and Isaiah's prophecy and Joel's prophecy. Look at the numbers. Look at everything that's happening. Oh, Trump is going to be president again. That means Jesus is coming. Oh, no, it was Obama. Oh, no, it's Biden. Oh, this person. Oh, this is happening. The, the, what, what was the TikTok trend? Um, the, those those uh, sheep walking around in a circle all over the world. Oh, this is what's happening because the sheep and the goats, you know, I'm going to pick this, that, and the third, and I'm going to put all of that together. That's it. It's February 32nd. That's when he comes. If you're wondering, I do know that February only has 28 days and sometimes 29, but I wanted to make the point that all of that is futile. No one knows the exact time when he would come. Not even the sun knows. Not even the angels know. Only the Father alone knows. This is one of those divine secrets that has not been revealed to us because of God's own authority and because of God's design. To this, Moses testifies in Deuteronomy 29, 29, where he says, The secret things belong to Yahweh our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may know and we may do all the words of this law. So the secret things belong to him. The things that are revealed are yours. So if he says, I'm not going to reveal this to you, be content with that. You know what curiosity did to the cat? There's no reason to be curious about this. In this case, if we're too curious and trying to wonder and probe and try to find out things that God has not revealed to us, we might go down a dangerous road of idolatry. So we need to be careful of that. Yet there are things that are revealed about this day in the Bible. And those belong to us. And this is what Paul explains. You know that the, it comes unexpectedly. It comes like a thief in the night. It comes suddenly. Notice what he says in verse 3. When they're saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them. How? Suddenly. It's sudden. It comes like a thief. It's unexpected. Like I said, there's no two-minute warning. You know, when you were kids, and I do this to my kids sometimes, we go someplace, and then we're about to leave. I give them a 10-minute warning. Okay, it's 10 minutes, and then five minutes, five minutes. Okay, two minutes. All right, one minute. All right, let's go. Then I'm kind of preparing them like that. There's no 10-minute warning. There's no five-minute warning. When the day of the Lord comes, it comes like a thief in the night. I don't remember the last time a thief called your house and said, hey, you know, I'm going to come and rob you at, at like 2 a.m., all right? Just, just make sure that you're asleep. I shot you a, a DM in, on Snap and stuff like that, right? Or send you a TikTok. It's unexpected. Peter says the same thing in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its work will be found out. The Lord Jesus, in, uh, in, to, uh, for, in his letter to the church of Sardis in Revelation chapter 3, verse 3, he tells them, So remember what you have received and heard, and keep it, and repent. Therefore, if you don't wake up, here's what Jesus says to the church, I will come like a thief, and you will not know what hour I come to you. Again, he says that in Revelation 16 and 15, Behold, I am coming like a thief. 
Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his garments so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. This much we know. It comes suddenly. It comes unexpectedly. This much we know so that we can be watchful and we can remain prayerful. For all we know, he can come right in the next 10 seconds. And how would he find us in here? Would he find us gleaning his word? Or would he find us more worried about whatever else is the topic of conversation on that side of the room? Would he find you actually trying to understand what his will is about the Lord? Or would he find you scrolling up and down on Instagram right now? Because it comes as a thief in the night. It's unexpected. But the problem is, there are false assumptions we make about this day. There will be false assumptions. This is what Paul tells them, right? In verse 3, while they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly, like labor pains upon a woman who is pregnant and they will never escape. You see what they're saying. There's a false assumption of peace and safety. Because there's no real disruption into your life. The word of God being preached does not cause any kind of disruption into your life. You come, you sit, you go, you come back, and then it's like same thing over and over again. You come, you sit, you listen, you, you go, that's it. You do the same thing next week. You come, you sit, you go to sleep, you wake up, you go, you come back, same thing. That there's no disruption in it. And you're at peace. You're wearing nice clothes. You're eating good food. You have safety and security. You don't have to worry about anybody coming, breaking uh, this, this door down and taking all of us into, in, into jail and setting us on fire for just for fun because we're Christians. You don't have to worry about that. We're comfortable. I don't know what's going on with the AC, but we, we, we're sitting in an air-conditioned room, supposedly, but it's, I don't know if it's, if it's the heat is on or, or whatever. But for whatever reason, we are comfortable. And this creates a sense of false security because there's a lack of real disruption and of harmony in our lives. This is what Paul is saying. This lack of disruption of harmony in their lives makes some people to have this false assumption. It makes them feel like they're safe and they're experiencing true and lasting peace. And some people do believe that world peace can only be found through human means. Let everybody just put down the guns and, and love each other. Love is love. Everybody just be tolerant to everybody else's needs. That's how we come to unite and be loving to one another and kindness and niceness. This is, this is how we get to be peaceful. And then they truly believe that. Because they don't have a real disruption of harmony. So Paul says, they feel like they're safe. And they feel like they have peace. But they do that in false assumption. Because in reality, look down in verse 4. They are in darkness. Because those, the implication of verse 4 is those that are in darkness, that they will overtake them like a thief. Right? But whether intentionally or unintentionally, there will be some of you, there will be some of us in this room right now listening to this message 
that you would think that your academic achievement or the money that you would make or the, the, the close-knit relationships that you have with your friends or you can just fill in the blank are the source of your true happiness and contentment. That is a sad reality. Whether you do it intentionally or unintentionally. There's some of us who think there's another source of eternal security. That you are immovably secured based on whatever state uh, you find yourself in. Because your parents are rich. Or because your parents are educated. Or because you live in a nice house. Or because you're really, really smart. Or because you're really, really handsome or beautiful outward appearance-wise. Because you have thousands and thousands of followers on Instagram and, and, and TikTok. Because you have friends that, that are into the same things as you and that makes you secure. You would feel like you're immovably secure. And that's not shaken by anything. And you would say, what day of the Lord is this crazy guy talking about? What judgment is he talking about? He's trying to scare us straight. This is just religious jargon so that the, the people can remain in power. Man, I just want to just get out of here. You would think that. Listen to how Peter describes this mindset in Peter chapter 3, verse 3 through 7. Knowing this, first of all, he says, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice. Actually, before I get to that, I want to explain what you just heard in verse 3 and 4, right? Their argument is, where is the promise of his coming? What are you talking about? Since the beginning, all things have been the same. I get born, I live, and I die. So with my parents, my grandparents, my great-grandparents, and their parents and their great-grandparents, it's the same thing. I mean, you live, you work hard. Maybe you, do, you gain some money, maybe you gain some wisdom, maybe you have some relationships with people that are, that are meaningful, and then you die. That's all life is. What is this coming you're talking about? He says, this is mockery. This mindset to God is mocking God. In God's eyes, you're mocking Him. And the reason why they do that, by the way, is so that they can follow after their own lust. They want to do whatever their flesh desires to do. They don't want to do what God wants, us, wants them to do. God wants to take his word more seriously and faithfully. We don't want to do that. I'd rather do something like this. While church is happening. I'd rather lean over and, and, and have a whole conversation, not even a little comment on what is being said. A whole conversation. Than actually listen to the word of God. Why? Because at the end of the day, I'm going to walk out of here. I'm going to eat my Chipotle. I'm going to go home. I'm going to watch my games. Boston is playing um, the 76ers, game seven. I'm going to watch my games. I'm going to scroll until my eyes get tired. And I'm going to go to bed. I'm going to wake up tomorrow, go to school, do it over again tomorrow. Until next Sunday when I come and do the same thing over again. And then, whatever. Maybe down the line I'll get. When you're thinking that mindset, brothers and sisters, Here's what Peter says. When you maintain this, 
it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at the time was destroyed. Going back to the time of Noah, remember? Noah built an ark for 120 years and people were mocking him because they have not known rain for 120 years. Your life is a blip. Our lives is a blip com compared to 120 years. We don't even have the bandwidth to go back 120 years what our parents and grandparents were doing and our great-grandparents were doing. From, from that time to this time, people were mocking like, what are you doing? God caused the flood and how many people got saved? Eight people. A lot of, um, I guess, archaeological or theological um, experts assume there was at least about 760 million people on earth at the time of the flood. 760 million people on the face of the earth. And only eight get saved. Because everybody else was like, what rain, man? Like ever since Adam lived, we ain't seen rain? What are you talking about? Flood? What are you talking about? I mean, Methuselah was there and, you know, we, we didn't see no kind of flood like that. I don't know what you're talking about. And then they're just mocking. And they're living their life for 120 years, waking up every morning, doing the, doing the same thing over again. So Peter reminds his readers of this truth. For, a hundred, for God made the earth out of the, the water and through which the world at the time was destroyed and being deluged with water. while they were still mocking, saying, since the beginning of creation, all is the same. This is lost on you, if you have that mindset. Verse 7, by, but by his word, the present heavens and the earth are being reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Keep mocking, seems to be the consensus. Keep thinking that that day is not going to come. That day will come. Suddenly. Whether you have false assumptions or not. And when that day of the Lord and judgment is revealed, it's no fun. It's destruction and pain. Notice what Paul says back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. While they're saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly. Like labor pains upon a woman. That day of the Lord is destructive and painful. We do know that it is revealed in God's word that the day of the Lord is a day of destruction and pain. Joel's vivid description in, in Joel chapter 1, verses 15 and 20, where he says, Alas, for the day, for the day of Yahweh, for the day of the Lord is near, and it would come as destruction from the Almighty. Has not food been cut off before your eyes? Gladness and joy from the houses of God. The seeds shrivel under the clods. The storehouses are desolate, the barns are pulled down, for the grain is dried up. How beasts groan, the herds of the cattle wander aimlessly because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. Do you hear the language of calamity happening? No food? Even the beasts are groaning? No grain coming forth? Verse 19, to you, O Yahweh, I cry, for fire has consumed the pasture of the wilderness, and the flame has burned up all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you, for the water brooks are dried up, and fire has consumed the pastures of the wilderness. This, this destructive 
kind of language being explained for the day of the Lord. He even describes it as labor pain, which is arguably the worst pain any human being can endure. Now, I don't make any presumptions or assumptions of how painful that is, because I'm not a woman. I've not been a woman, nor would I ever be. But I have seen women go through, I have seen my wife, more specifically, go through labor pains. That's the worst pain any human being can endure. Listen to what Joel says in Joel 2.11. But Yahweh gives forth his voice before his military force. Surely his camp is very numerous and for his mighty is, is he who does his word. The day of the Lord, the day of Yahweh is indeed great and very awesome. Not awesome like we think we are. It's like, hey. That movie that we watched last week was awesome, like great. No, awesome as in like it actually makes your jaw drop. You cannot bear it. Look at what he says. Who can endure it? It's an unendurable kind of weightiness about this day of the Lord, which brings destruction on those who are proclaiming peace and safety. We're good right now. We don't need God right now. The Christ that you're preaching right now, He's irrelevant. He don't do nothing to me. He don't put money in my pocket. He don't add any kind of notoriety to my friends. He don't make me have fun. So he's irrelevant. That kind of peace and security, that kind of false assumption will be met with destruction and pain is what Paul is saying. And you might think, oh, that's because you believe in the Bible, and I don't believe in the Bible. And, you know, that part of the Bible I don't really believe in. Only the Bible, part of the Bible that suits me. Only the part of the Bible that says God will forgive all sins and invites everybody to, to heaven despite how they lived or whatever. That's the part of the Bible that I, live, uh, I believe. So this doesn't apply to me. Notice what Paul says. They will never escape. This reality is not an optional event in human history. Instead, it's inescapable. And Paul's explanation of this event implies that the church knows that this terrible, awesome day cannot be avoided. You and I cannot avoid the day of the Lord, nor can anybody that's outside. This is not just for the church. Yeah, Paul is writing for the church, and I'm preaching to a church who I who trust that the Lord has given you insight into his gospel and has caused you to be children of light. And therefore, this applies to you, yes, but this applies to every single human being that has ever lived in history. This is what Paul means when he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Or in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, and as, and, and as much as it is appointed for men to die once, guess what happens after that? You just black out, right? Just go into oblivion. There's nothing after that. Nobody knows. It is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes the judgment comes judgment. It is an unavoidable, inescapable reality. The day of the Lord. You cannot escape it. You can ignore the truth of the gospel being preached to you week in and week out faithfully by the church, by your parents, by people God puts in your life. You can avoid to walk according to the calling of the gospel. You can ignore the church and church service and, and, and serving the Lord and walking in his will. You can avoid all of that while you're living on this earth. And he might not smite you to death because of his tolerance. 
and His mercy. But that day of the Lord is something that you cannot avoid. None of us can avoid it. Even if we die, we can't avoid it. That's what we saw in Revelation chapter 20. Listen to John's explanation of what he sees. That was our scripture reading, 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sits upon on it, from whose presence the earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. Heaven and earth? The entire universe, when they see the Lord seated on the throne, they want to hide their face from him. They want to run away. Can they run away? No, there's no place for them to run away. He's right there. That's it. They can't avoid it. And I saw the dead, the great, and the small. I mean, look, listen to the range. It doesn't matter if you died rich or poor, if you died a Christian or a non-believer, if you died very smart or very not so smart. It doesn't matter how you died. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened. This is the main book, the book of life. And if your name is not found in it, then you are thrown into the lake of fire. As these books are being opened, both the, and the dead were judged from the things were, that were written, written in the books according to their deeds. Verse 13, and the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged by the one who sits on the throne. It's inescapable. Even death and Hades and hell would come to be judged. And they would either, well, they would be thrown into the lake of fire because this is a second death. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Scary. Manny, you're scaring us. You're preaching fire and brimstone. What should the church's attitude in light of this be? In light of this, look at what Paul says in verse 4. But you, talking to the church, this is the reality, this is the truth that you should be aware of, that you should know very well. But you don't need to worry about it. This is what Paul says. But you, brothers, are not in darkness that this day would overtake you as a thief. So in light of this, the church's position is that the church is deemed to be in the light, not in darkness. The church is described in verse 5 as the sons of light and the sons of day. So you as a church, you as a believer, are not in darkness, and this day is not going to overtake you like a thief. Because you are in the light, not in darkness. You have trusted in the first coming of Christ, and you have put your faith in Him, and you are obedient to His will, and you walk with Him, and you are true disciples, and as true disciples are assembled together as a church, and therefore you don't need to worry. But you are not in darkness. Great news. God has deemed by His sovereign grace to save you. He deems you to be in the light. By His sovereign grace, 
that has saved you and called you into his assembly, into his church, into his body. By the way, I'm not just talking about church membership or church attendance, nor is Paul talking about church attendance or church membership on paper. You don't need to worry because you've been born again into the family of God by the Spirit of God. That you're a true disciple. That is to say, you're an active member of the body, grafted into the body by faith and repentance. That's who you are. You're a true disciple. that you endure and preserve by the power of the Holy Spirit. You abide in Christ, abiding in and abiding by His Word as revealed in Scripture. That describes you. Then there's no need for you to know the time and the seasons to be written to you. And that's who you are. So as a church, you and I must remember this truth. To have a balanced and biblical view of the, the first and the second coming of Christ. So that we're not surprised by it. But hold fast with steadfastness and wavering faith. In Christ to supply His grace to us for life today and assurance for His coming. Friends, if you have not done so, if you have not put your trust and your faith in Christ and Christ alone to save you, you're still in darkness. And this day would overtake you as a thief in the night. But the good news is, the good news of the gospel is that you can be born again, born of light, born of God. All you have to do is receive this grace in faith and repentance. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that we not in darkness, but we are sons of light, sons of the day, so that when the day of the Lord comes, whether in His coming at the consummation, consummation of history, or when we die and stand before Him for judgment, We can testify and we can look upon Jesus, the author and the finisher of our salvation, to redeem us, to save us from the calamity and the destruction and the pain that is prepared for children of wrath, children of disobedience, and the children of darkness. So, Father, would you give us this faith today? Would you give my brothers and my sisters this faith, this endurance, this heart of discipleship, by your grace and by your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.